First Samuel 31, somebody just said to me a minute ago, there's not a lot of verses here. And you're right, there's not a lot of verses here. And the text doesn't really lend itself to a rah-rah concluding sermon. It's not a great end to the life of Saul that we find. But 1 Samuel 31 picks up on the heels of the events of 1 Samuel chapter 28. And so in 1 Samuel 28, you'll remember that Saul was up in the northern part of Israel and the Philistines had drawn up for battle and he went to the, the witch of Endor, the medium there, to find out what would happen and whether or not he would be granted victory in battle. And then he went into battle against the Philistines, and that's what we pick up on here. But you'll remember the, the medium's activity there. In fact, it wasn't her at all because she's shocked when it actually works. But God raises up the spirit of Samuel, and Samuel has one last prophecy for Saul, and that is, Saul, you're going to die. You're going to die, and your sons are going to die, and you're going to die at the hand of the Philistines. Well, as that chapter ends, Saul and his sons eat with the woman, and then they leave. And then we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 31, after that meanwhile back with David of chapter 29 and chapter 30. And as we pick up in chapter 31, the Philistines and Israel are engaged in battle. And as the battle rages, verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. So we begin to see that the fulfillment of this prophecy of Samuel taking place. The Philistines are pressing in, closing in, and Saul and his sons, they retreat to Mount Gilboa, which is up here. I'm sorry, the slide's a little hard to see. Right there, kind of in the, the middle of the slide there, that's Mount Gilboa. And so that's where Saul and his sons retreat in the midst of this battle. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and this is on the heels of verse 2, the Philistines killing his sons. So there's part 1 of the prophecy done. Your sons will fall in battle. Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua fall in verse 2. Then verse 3, the, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers, gravely, mortally wounded by the archers. And so in verse 4, Saul turns to his armor bearer and says, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. This is probably a, a twofold fear. He's probably terrified because of everything that's going on around him. If the archers are, are, are raining arrows down at them right now, maybe they've found cover behind a rock or a stone or whatever this is at this moment. But this armor bearer, who is probably a young man, is, is probably scared of, of being in the midst in the heat of the battle and seeing the way things are going. And now his king has been mortally wounded and his king's sons are already dead. And so you can imagine how terrified that, that young man must have been in that circumstance. But I think the second part of his fear is he didn't want to be the one who would kill Saul. He didn't want to be known as the one who had, had taken the life of the Lord's anointed. And so therefore it says, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. He put the, the butt of the sword on the ground. And leaned, basically just let his whole body weight come down on top of that sword. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, there it is, and his three sons and his armor bearer with all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. 
So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the walls of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So we read this account, 1 Samuel 31, and, and, and we have to push back from the, the desk, so to speak, and say, okay, God, what do we do with this? I mean, certainly there's, there's the, the elements of, of great doctrine and theology that are here that God fulfills his promises, that God is a God who, when he says what he says, he does what he intends. Saul, you and your sons are going to die, 1 Samuel 31. Saul and his sons die at the hands of the Philistines in fulfillment of the prophecy. But as we read, the, the, the highlight of this text is these valiant men from Jabesh Gilead. But how do you preach a message on go out and be valiant men? Go find the naked bodies on the walls in your life and, and bring them down and go burn their, their bodies and bury their bones. I mean, that might fly in some churches, but come on, right? How are we going to, to craft a message out of 1 Samuel 31? This is a total defeat for the, for the Israelites. In fact, so bad that the, the other men in the surrounding area see what takes place and they run for their lives. It's over. Our king is dead. His sons are dead. The Philistines come in and they chop off Saul's head and they remove his armor and we learn from 1 Chronicles 10.10 that they not only put the armor in one of the temples to their gods, they also take his head and put it in one of the temples to their gods, and they strap his stripped body to the walls. It's not a text that is easy for us to look at and say, oh yeah, this is, this is where we should go with this. But this is the end of the life of Israel's first king. The first king that, remember, they chose over and above the warnings that they were rejecting God. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, when Samuel had gone to the Lord and said, Lord, the people want a king, God responded and said, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Why? Because they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. See, Israel rejected God and chose Saul and Saul had his moments of greatness, that's undeniable, but they were ultimately overshadowed by long stretches of egotistical madness. And so we've spent the majority of this last year in 1 Samuel looking at what we get when we substitute our trust in God for trust in man. His wisdom was inferior, his strength was inferior, his military power was inferior, his glory was inferior. And finally we come to the end and we see this king, this mighty king of Israel, left headless and naked as a billboard to everyone who would pass by of what it looks like when you put your trust in men. So this morning, I'd like to remind us of God's trustworthiness, of his reliability, of everything that he is and that no man, no ruler, no human king can claim to be. So if you would, grab your Bibles and let's jump to Revelation 1, 8. Revelation 1, 8, with the backdrop of, of 1 Samuel in mind. 
let's get a running start, start in verse 1 of Revelation. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches who are in Asia. Grace to you, peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And here's our verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 8 is our, our text this morning. And it falls right on the heel of this prophecy that Christ is returning. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then as if to to validate this, God the Father speaks. And when he speaks, he begins with this statement, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. In Hebrew, it would have been the Aleph and the Tau. But when we say that something has everything from A to Z, what are we really saying? You guys ever notice the smile on the Amazon logo there? From the A to the Z? What are we saying when we say something has everything from A to Z? Are we saying that it only has A and it only has Z? No, it's everything in between, right? It's the entirety. It it encompasses all of it. Well, in the context of Revelation 1 and the rest of Revelation, God is establishing his position as the sovereign Lord over all human existence. In fact, the book is is bookended this way. Revelation 22, verse 12. Listen to the similarities here. Jesus is speaking here. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So what's the significance of this, of this idea of God as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end and everything in between? Well, think about the scope of history for a moment. Genesis 1 and 2, we have God create everything. Genesis 1 1, in the beginning God, which implies what? Not only that he was there at the beginning, but he was there before the beginning. Genesis 3 through Malachi 4, we have the history of God's people, his chosen people, Israel that he called out for himself. So you go from the, the forefathers, so you go then, then into the, the time of, of the kings, and then you go into the time of exile and the time of the prophets. And all of the, throughout this, God is orchestrating the events of history around his chosen people, Israel. How about the Gospels? There we have God take on flesh in the form of God the Son, Jesus Christ, taking on humanity, living amongst us, living a perfectly obedient life, going to the cross for our sins, raising from the dead. God divinely, sovereignly orchestrating those events. How about in the epistles? We have the instruction in the doctrinal formation of the church taking place. God raising up men like, Saul, like, like Paul, sorry, 
like John, like Peter, like James, to write these letters to the church so that the church would know how to, to, to operate and what's right and how to, to go about their, their business of being the church of God. And then finally we come to Revelation and we see God lay out for us very clearly, here's what's coming. Here's what's coming. And through it all, God is there. In fact, there has never been a moment of created or uncreated history wherein God has not been ruling, where he's not been directing, where he's not been present. Israel didn't knock him off the throne when they went to Samuel and said, we want a king. Nebuchadnezzar didn't knock him off his throne when he came into Jerusalem and ransacked the city. The Pharisees didn't knock him off the throne when they crucified Christ. Nero, Muhammad, Hitler, Nietzsche, Mao, Castro, Kim Jong-un, Osama bin Laden, and so forth and so on. No one has knocked him off his throne at any point in history. He has been sovereign over it all. And so for you and me, as we consider 1 Samuel, and we consider the, the, the folly of putting our trust in a human king and need to be maybe reminded of why it is that we need to anchor ourselves solely to God. The first reason this morning is this. We need to, this morning is we need to bow before his sovereignty. Bow before his sovereignty. He is the author of everything, the author of life, the author of death, and the sustainer of everything in between. If he's the alpha and the omega of all things, the beginning and the end of all things, he's certainly well acquainted with our beginning and end as well. But consider Saul. Contrast that with Saul. Saul couldn't guarantee the outcome of a single skirmish, let alone be trusted for the preservation of life. Saul couldn't trust that, or the people, excuse me, couldn't trust that Saul could maintain peace with his own, within his own administration, let alone that he could be a wise and diplomatic ruler. Saul didn't have the power to influence the harvest that he needed to put food on his own table, let alone provide for the needs of his people. See, Saul was not a true sovereign. And no ruler since has ever been a true sovereign. He was a cheap imitation that the people had chosen in place of God. And so our question is, as we reflect on 1 Samuel, as we reflect on these things, maybe we're not demanding a king in our lives, but what are the cheap imitations of sovereignty that we've chosen to substitute for God in our own lives? What are those areas that we're tempted to forget that God is still ruling, still on the throne? Maybe they're politics or finances or entertainment or evangelism, sanctification in general. These are the areas we need to be reminded about of his sovereignty. Have you committed the error of, of trusting in human wisdom? The forecast of financial analysts, are you putting all your hope there? Are you putting your hope in the stock market or in a bank account, in a job, in a boss, in the grass is greener on the other side? Looking to them for counsel, guidance, fulfillment, satisfaction, security, rather than looking to the sovereign of all the universe. See, everyone else has a beginning and an end. There's no one that we can put our confidence here on, on this side of eternity that, that lives on this earth who can say what God says here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Pastor Mike's been preaching about this concept, hasn't he? Luke chapter 21, he's been going to it a lot about this idea that, man, some pretty scary things are coming. But we can continue to, to have confidence that God is still ruling, right? Right? 
Anybody feel the earthquake yesterday? Okay, I didn't. You know how I knew about it? Facebook. Man, it blew up. Earthquake, earthquake, earthquake. Pastor Mike was preaching about this. Here's the earthquake. Look, if a, if a kid from Texas didn't feel anything happen, this is not the earthquake we're talking about. But at the same time, I mean, think about that. Look at what a, what a, a tiny little earthquake can do to us. God's still ruling. Or imagine being in, in Hawaii right now with those volcanic fissures opening up in the ground. And all, now all of a sudden, does it matter who's sitting in the White House at that point in time? No. Does it matter if, if we were in a nuclear deal or not with Iran at that point in time? No. I mean, we've put so much confidence and so much trust in human rulers, human agendas, human goals, and, and, and it's not wrong to be involved in those things, but if that's where our, our, our confidence is, if when we get that uneasy feeling in the pit of our stomach, we have to retreat to say, well, the right party is in office to comfort ourselves, we're missing the boat, guys. We need to come back to this idea that God is sovereign over everything and bow before his throne, his agenda, his will. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he continues, who is and who was and who is to come. He is, was, and is to come. This phrase points to God's immutability, his unchanging nature. It alludes back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. There's a lot going on in that verse that maybe we don't pick up on at the surface there. Notice God doesn't tell Moses, I am who I will be. Or I am who I am today. I am who I was yesterday. No, present tense. I am who I am, and I will always be who I am right now. In fact, even the rabbinic commentators on the Old Testament picked up on what he was saying there. They translated this verse in the Jewish commentaries. One of them translated it this way. I am now what I always was and always will be. That sounds pretty familiar. Sounds pretty close to Revelation 1.8. How about this one, though? Another rabbinic commentator said, this is how we should understand Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. I am he who is and who was, and I am he who will be. That's almost word for word what we find God saying in Revelation 1.8. See, God is unchangeable. Who he is right now is who he was when he said, let there be light. And it's who he will be when he brings everything to its full and final consummation. His person, his character, his integrity never changes. His promises will never void. His thinking will never evolve on a subject. He will never learn anything. And his attitude towards us, his creatures, is not capricious. Wouldn't it be great to have a ruler who was immutable, who was unchanging, who you could trust to be the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow? Think about Saul's progression as king. When David went to anoint him, where was Saul? Hiding in the baggage, right? So they drag him out from the suitcases. In fact, some of Israel's going, this guy, really? Well, then he, he leads Israel boldly and courageously under the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rushes on him. He goes to, the, to rescue the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And that's why they come back and take his, wall, his body down from the wall in 1 Samuel 31. 
And so he leads boldly there. He goes from the luggage to, to leading boldly. But then, unfortunately, in First Samuel chapter 15, you remember the story with the Amalekites. Saul's pride begins to creep in. His arrogance to, begins to creep in. And he forgets that it's God who grants him his victories. And, and Saul begins to take credit. He disobeys God. He begins to rely on himself. Well, and then towards the end, we find Saul in a jealous, blind rage. He's taking 3,000 men and going after 600 men, really going after one of those 600 men. And then we find him desperately turning to an evil medium in chapter 28 because God has totally withdrawn any counsel from his life. And then we find him in one last grasp at fleeting dignity, take his sword and fall on it on Mount Gilboa. Saul had his ups and downs, didn't he? Certainly, we couldn't look at Saul and say, hey, Saul was an immutable ruler. Think about it. Think about any of our world rulers. Think about any of our presidents, politicians, who they put themselves out to be during campaign season. Then they get elected and take office, and, and, and maybe they fulfill some promises for a while, but then they realize, hey, I've got to get reelected. And so you see this, this amorphous movement through a lot there depending on whether or not it's campaign season. How about this from the Washington Post in 2015? When President Obama said during the 2008 campaign that he did not support marriage for same-sex couples, he only did so because it was politically expedient. David Axelrod writes in his new book, Believer, My 40 Years in Politics According to Time. Obama publicly opposed same-sex marriage for years after that. In fact, until an interview with ABC News in 2012, which also just so happened to be the first year that support for gay marriage crested opposition, data from Pew shows that the year Obama was that 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 a sorry, and the year Obama was campaigning for re-election. What's he saying there? He's saying, look, Obama was against gay marriage until it became unpopular to be against gay marriage. And then he swung the pendulum in the opposite direction. Why? Because he wanted the votes. So we don't have rulers that are immutable, rulers that are unchanging, but God never changes. He's the same today as when he first said, let there be light. In fact, one of the greatest forces of change for anyone is what? It's time, isn't it? In fact, we'll even say, give it time, he'll come around. You can't say that about God. Why? Because time is a created construct, and God exists outside of time. God is every, everywhere present at all times. The passage of time has no effect on God at all. Cultural trends can't affect him. Changing morals can't affect him. It's impossible for him to learn anything, to be enlightened, to be caught off guard. It's impossible for him to change. So for you and I in a world of failed promises, in a world of leaders who we can only trust so far, we can fully trust in, we can fully rely on God's immutability. Rely on his immutability. Think for a moment how this impacts this, this doctrine of God's unchanging nature, that he is never altered. Think about how that impacts our, our view of his promises. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, what's the promise? He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God, that will never, ever change. 
about Philippians 4, 6 through 7. I don't know how many times I go to this in counseling situations, but it's so often. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests made known to God. Thank the Lord. There's another part of that verse, which says what? Here's the promise. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God, not just the peace of God, that peace which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Again, praise God, that will never change because God never changes. That promise will always be found true. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And what? He will make straight your paths. That promise will never change. Now, some of those paths that he makes straight may be paths through valleys, paths through trials, paths through suffering. But nonetheless, he is going to be there. He is going to be faithful and he will still be unchanging for us. See, these are promises not contingent on time. They're promises that are sure, that are are guaranteed because of the character and integrity of our King, of our God. He will always save, always forgive, always give us that peace, always make our paths straight. Again, ask David how immutable Saul was. David goes from playing the harp in Saul's chamber to dodging a spear in a matter of seconds. David goes from running from Saul and Saul pursuing him with 3,000 men to seeing Saul repent of his pursuit of him only to turn around and, and chase him again the next day. Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have that immutable ruler. We have that unchanging ruler. And so it doesn't matter. Yes, we can be thankful that, that there are presidents that are going to be kind towards the preservation of life or kind towards the, the protection of religious liberty and religious freedom. Praise God and thank him for that. Let's rejoice in that, absolutely. But let's bear in mind that presidents change every four to eight years. Congress can change with a re-election. Laws are going to come. Laws are going to go Markets rise and fall. Leaders depose and are deposed. Our God is the only one who reigns unchanging. And so we can trust him. We can put everything that we have in the basket of God's sovereignty. And he will come through. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. And he ends with these two words, the Almighty. The Almighty, the Almighty One, the All-Powerful One, El Shaddai, the Omnipotent One. This is attested to time and again in the scriptures. Job 42, verse 2. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. It's an amazing statement. And I think it rolls in one ear and out the other for us because we sit here in a church that's doctrinally and theologically sound and we get this, okay, the doctrine of God's omnipotence, great. But think about that statement that Job makes there. You can do all things. 
Think about how that should invade us and impact our perspective on a, a struggling relationship that we have, whether it's with a spouse or with a child or another family member. God, you can do all things. You can bring reconciliation here. Or if it's a loved one who's not walking with, with Christ, who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, and it's been years of us going to them, sharing the gospel with them, and we've seen no movement at all, can we come back to a verse like Job 42.2 and say, God, I know you can do all things. I'm not talking about name it and claim it, right? We're not saying, okay, God, you can do all things, so I'm going to claim this and you're going to do this. I'm saying, do we have the confidence? Do we have the hope? Do we have that sustaining trust that God truly can do all things so that as long as we have another day, we're going to hit our knees and we're going to pray that he will one more time? He's the almighty. Jeremiah 32, 7, this isn't any man saying this about God. Now this is God speaking Jeremiah 32, 7, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? That's the rhetorical question of all rhetorical questions. Is there anything I cannot do? And all of God's people said, no. Luke 1, 37, Nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. None of these statements can be said about a human ruler. Certainly none of them were true of Saul. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 14.24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? If you want more for later, Psalm 8. Psalm 19. Psalm 139, Genesis 1 and 2, the Almighty. In the beginning, God said, and there was, and it was good, the Almighty. You know, Saul had moments of might, moments of victory, moments of, of glory where he could flex his muscles, but even in those moments, any power, any might, any strength that he had was first derived from God. And in his better moments, he understood that. You remember after he was anointed king and those people were saying, why is this guy going to be our king? And then he goes out and leads Israel into victory and he comes back and the people tell Samuel, hey, let's get all those people that were questioning Saul's kingship and whether or not he should be king. Let's get them and kill them. And Saul responds and says, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today, what? The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. We saw this last week with David, 1 Samuel 29. He goes and he gets all of his, his wives back, all of the men's wives back, all of their possessions back, everything back. And he comes home and his men are going in front of him saying, this is David's spoil. And David says, no, 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 it's not my spoil. God has worked this victory. This is the reality that Saul would eventually forget that led him to his downfall, to his boastful pride and his willful ignorance of the Lord's counsel. 
this is what led him to that hilltop on Mount Gilboa and, and with the opportunity to, to choose between death by the Philistines or death by a sword. See, Saul had no power that was not first from the Lord. Saul didn't even have the power to pick up a sword and fall on it, apart from God's sovereignty. It's the same for every ruler that has ever existed since. Daniel 2, 20 through 21. You guys remember that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had with the really weird-looking statue that would have been super unstable? He panics. Nebuchadnezzar does, calls his wise men in and says, tell me both my dream and the interpretation. They say, that's impossible. And so he says, great, I'm going to kill all of you. Daniel goes and says, hey, give us a minute. Goes back to his room. They pray. He pleads with the Lord, Lord, give us the, the answer. You're able to do this. God responds and gives him the content and the interpretation. But it's not that that I want to focus on. I want to focus on Daniel's response. He says this, Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God, the almighty, the all-powerful one, is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. In fact, Jeremiah 25, 9, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, one of the, the most wicked and evil rulers that the world had known, God says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. What are the next two words? My servant. There's not a ruler in a position of authority today anywhere on earth that God has not put there. There's not a ruler on, on the face of this planet who has not first sourced his power from God, the almighty, the all-powerful one. So for us as his followers, his people, his children, we need to not only bow before sovereignty and rely on his immutability, but we get to exult in his omnipotence. Exult in his omnipotence. Exult, it's, it's a weird word for us, but it means to feel joy, to rejoice in, to feel exuberance about. Because we get to consider that our God is the all-powerful, the almighty God of all creation, the God who has put every ruler in their place. And so when Kim Jong-un throws a fit, Or when the political offices here change hands, we don't have to panic. We can rejoice in our all-powerful God who sets up and tears down kings. That our God has no rival. That our God has no one who can stay his hand. That definitely wasn't true of Saul. But let's bring it down to, to, to street level for us. God's omnipotence. Why, why else can we exult and re rejoice in God's omnipotence? Because think about what God is doing for you right now. What his word says that he's going to do for us. And now consider that he's the all-powerful one and that none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Listen to this. We know that God causes all things, what? To work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Well, what's his purpose? 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. What's God doing with you that none can stay his hand or stop him? He's conforming you to the image of Christ and using everything that comes into your life towards that end. That's encouraging. That's reason for rejoice. More so than a, a new tax plan, right? More so than secure borders. Those things aren't bad. But I'd much rather be conformed to the image of Christ. And we have a ruler, a king, a God, whose policies and procedures and laws are not going to be overturned by the next administration. How about this? We are confident that he who began a good work in us, what? Will be faithful. Why? Because none can stay his hand. None can stop him. Will be faithful to bring it to completion. This all-powerful one, he's also the one who's blessed us in Christ with all the heavenly blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's also the one, according to his power, who has predestined us for adoption as sons. He's also the one who has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance. An inheritance, by the way, Peter will pick up on in 1 Peter 1 and tell us that we are being guarded by his power for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so at street level, I mean, from 30,000 foot view, we can say, look, the affairs of the world, what's going on in this world, we don't need to be terrified. We don't need to panic because the all-powerful, almighty God is on our side. But from that street level, guys, we can rejoice because the all-powerful, almighty God who's orchestrating all of that is orchestrating our sanctification and ultimate deliverance where we will one day be delivered from this world. No earthly ruler can lay claim to that. But we live in a world that doesn't look like we serve an all-powerful God all the time, don't we? We live in a world with lost jobs and broken marriages and wayward children in unstable financial systems. We live in a world where diagnoses come back as terminal. And so how do we reconcile these things that we serve an all-powerful God and yet the doctor told us we've got two weeks, three weeks, a month, six months to live? I'm going to suggest that none of those things challenge or compromise one ounce of God's power. Because he's not promised us anywhere that he will overcome financial burdens, broken relationships, lost children, or cancer this side of eternity. But there is a day coming when our all-powerful God will deliver us into an existence that's unlike anything else. We can make America great again, but but there's a a much brighter future for us. John gets there in Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, God, 
will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's immutable. He's all-powerful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. He's saying, you can bank everything on this future. And so as we walk through the the trials and the struggles here, we need to remember that the all-powerful God is preparing this for us which is better than if we were to have a life of no pain on this earth. Better than if we were to live with flush pockets every day for the rest of our lives. Better than to be healed. See, his plan, this plan, will come to fruition because he's the all-powerful one. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Israel's king, the one that they had chosen, the one that they had looked to instead of God, was left headless, naked, and strapped to a wall. This is where confidence in man will lead us. To desolation, to disappointment, to fear, to anxiety. Saul was a, a poor excuse for sovereignty and a pathetic excuse a pathetic substitute for the God of this universe. And so I pray as, as we reflect on this series that this series has given us pause to reflect on God's sovereignty. The areas of our lives where maybe we've gotten out of line, where we've let our prideful self-reliance creep in. I pray that this series has encouraged us by the faith of men like Samuel and the boldness of David, the humi- humility of David. I pray that this series has reminded us of how patient and merciful and gracious our sovereign God is. And I pray that this series has painted us a picture of a God before whose sovereignty we can bow, upon whose immutability we can rely, and in whose omnipotence we can rejoice with a hope-filled confidence. He is the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that though Israel rejected you, you did not reject Israel. Lord, we're thankful that you haven't washed your hands of us and walked away. We're thankful that you are on your throne at all times and nothing can ever or will ever change that. God, help us to be men who are anchored to you. That our confidence is is holy and entirely in you and in no one else. Lord, guard our our hearts against looking for earthly things, earthly leaders, earthly rulers to give us a sense of security or comfort or peace. Lord, that's only to be found in you. God, may we be faithfully obedient to you as we walk through uh, this life, Lord. May we trust you. 
Lord God, thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is right now the same as you were, the same as you will be. God, thank you that you are the Almighty One, that none can stay your hand, and that that future that you have, that you have said, it is done, God. Even when Paul wrote in Romans 8, that, that idea that we've been already glorified, that it's, it's in past tense because it's as good as done. Lord, we trust you. We thank you for that. Pray that you'd be pleased now as we turn to a time of, of discussion in our small groups. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.